0: Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 sales and marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. I'm going to give you a really quick backstory on the Evolution 2.0 project. So like Greg said, I'm known as a guy that wrote the book on Google advertising and Facebook advertising. Those books are in there sixth and fourth editions respectively and that's all nice and that's all fine and good but there's not enough kamikaze pilot in that so i have to busy my hands with other things and so 20 years ago my younger brother brian graduated from seminary and he wanted to be a pastor and he ended up instead of being a pastor ended up being a missionary in china and um, a couple years into his missionary in China stint, he starts sending me all these emails because he's starting to have a lot of questions about, you know, I don't know if all this stuff they told me in seminary makes sense. I don't even know if this Christianity thing makes sense. And we're both pastor's kids and we're both in the deep end of like theological stuff. And so the emails start going back and forth. And so he's, he's having a pretty serious tussle with, Intellectual issues. Well, I went to visit him in 2004, and when I got there, I figured out, you know, he he doesn't believe this stuff anymore. He is not on this train, and that was a little unsettling to me. And we were riding in this bus somewhere, and we got into this argument. I was feeling a little threatened by all of this, and I go, Brian, I'm an engineer and i've built a lot of things and this the hand at the end of my arm this is a nice nice piece of engineering but you don't think this is an accumulation of random accidents do you he goes hold on he just comes right back with it. and almost everybody's had this conversation you don't need a designer you just need millions of years of replication and random copying errors and natural selection and you'll get a hand that's an illusion Perry and I was like trying to think ch- 10 chess moves ahead of him in the conversation and I could already see you know it might not make sense to an electrical engineer but maybe the biologist know something you don't how about instead of ruining your little vacation to China by arguing with Brian all the time about you just stop the arguing now and when you get home you go research this to your heart's content and that's what i did well i was kind of terrified because brian okay you haven't had a theological argument until you've had it with a guy with a master's degree in theology from a conservative seminary who knows greek and hebrew (laughs) Okay, that's like a whole nother ball game. So, Brian was already rattling my cage, and now I'm diving into the vast realms of evolution, creation, intelligent design, and in molecular biology. And boy, you know, if you thought semiconductor materials or engineering fields and waves was complicated tri-molecular biology. Um, And so I was lost uh, for a while. Well, then some things started to make sense. One day, I was trying to understand the genetic code, and all of a sudden, I had this massive flash of recognition. Now, keep in mind, I am... I feel like I'm drowning. I'm terrified of where this is going to take me. Maybe this is going to make me an atheist. I don't know. My wife is completely, she knows what's going on. She's completely helpless to do anything or say anything to help matters any. I just felt like I was flying through a black void. And all of a sudden, it was like I grabbed onto a handle. And the handle was this. I wrote this book, Industrial Ethernet. The first edition was 2002. Now, if any of you have insomnia, this book will help. (laughs) Um, Now, I joke about that. In actuality, the ingenious way that they put ones and zeros on a wire and get it to go around the world is If you can switch on your geek switch, it's actually quite fascinating. And if you're into this stuff, it's not insomnia. And it's incredibly clever, and it deals with some very, very fundamental principles of communication. And I'm I'm studying the genetic code and how DNA works, and I'm like, I've seen this before. I know what this is. Oh my word. I know what all of this stuff is. And what's on the screen here, you don't have to really know anything to just see from the colors and the structure. This is the structure of an ethernet packet, which all you people on Zoom, these ethernet packets are getting unpacked and turned into pixels like a million times a second. Okay, this is DNA transcription and translation. So when a cell reads a strand of DNA and turns it into amino acids and proteins, it is mathematically the same as your computer taking an ethernet packet and turning it into an image or a sound or a keystroke. It's the same. I'm like, oh my word, it's digital communication. DNA is digital code. At the most simplest level, it's identical. And it runs on all the same principles. Now, this told me instantly that if evolution was true, it was not even remotely possible that it was random copying errors. Ask any IT guy if random copying errors help your router or your, you know, ask them they'll give you an emphatic no not possible okay what I found out was well so this all by itself might have turned me into a creationist or intelligent design guy or an anti-evolution guy but it didn't because I discovered something else and i'm just giving you like the really sped up version i've been doing this for 16 years so you're getting highly compressed this woman barbara mcclintock this is a u.s postage stamp with her picture on it in 1944 a long time ago she figured out that if she hit a corn plant with radiation which damaged its DNA. Think like scrambling a hard drive, okay? A corn plant took apart those genes and chromosomes, reconstructed them and recoded them so that they would work. In other words, the computer program rewrote its own code repaired its own operating system in real time this is 1944 this is before they even knew what dna was they could see it but they didn't know it was made out of it. everybody thought she was crazy woman and in 1983 she won the nobel prize The significance of her work is really, she was the first person to witness a live, real-time evolutionary event and figure out exactly what had happened. Remarkable. Especially considering the technology she had and the tools she had. It was incredible. Okay, now, This little story I'm telling you turns evolution completely upside down, because I can guarantee that what 99% of you have heard about evolution, it's random, it's purposeless, it's accidental, and survival of the fittest just sorts it all out in the end. That is not true. In fact, it's probably the biggest mistake in the history of science, and I am not exaggerating. The truth is, organisms are so like your body, or worms, or fish, or bacteria, or whatever, are so smart that when there's heat, or cold, or starvation, or predators, or whatever, They re-engineer their own genetics to adapt, and in many cases, they will pass that adaptation on to their offspring. For example, here's a a very practical example of this. I've got a friend named John Forday. He is a pediatric, children, toxicologist, who studies the effects of secondhand smoke on children. He says there are 300 effects of secondhand smoke on children. The number one worst effect is this. A woman smokes, her body, in reaction to the smoking, makes epigenetic changes, which change her physiology so that she can deal with the smoke. Those changes get passed through her egg to her daughter which get passed through the daughter's egg to the granddaughter and the daughter will have asthma and the granddaughter will have even worse asthma and the grandmother could have died before the granddaughter was even conceived. So smoking causes hereditary diseases that get passed on through the egg to grandchildren. That is a real-time evolutionary adaptation. For a hundred years, the evolutionary biologists insisted that was impossible. It's possible and it's been happening for three billion years. And that's why evolution works, okay? And it's the best engineering anybody has ever seen, ever. okay. And anybody that tells you that science got rid of God all they did was they kicked the can down the road to an even more difficult problem than what anybody was arguing about before. It would be like, you know, what if Tesla made a car that actually got better every year? Like, that updated its own software without connecting to headquarters. Okay, that, that's what we're dealing with. So, I was just astounded. I was like, why is anybody... This, everything I'm telling you, it's been in the literature for decades. Why is anybody telling you this? And this is standard literature. This is not like, I don't know, Aunt Josie's alternative medicine farm with llamas and painting, okay? Like this is standard university research. Well, so this led me to do, I said, well, what are we going to do about this? So long story short, I went out and started raising money for a technology prize. I said, you know that kicking the can down the road thing back to the beginning? We gotta put a spotlight on this beginning because whatever the first cell was, not only did it have digital code, it apparently had the ability to rewrite its own digital code. Nobody's paying enough attention to that. So I said, I want to put together a $10 million prize to, for anybody that can figure this out. You know who the first person I pitched was? It was Greg Hedges in 2012. Uh, it was. I roped him into it. I'm like, Greg, I got this idea. You want to meet with? And so I showed him this thing. Well, in uh, 2019, I went to the Royal Society of Great Britain, which is the oldest scientific organization in the world. Isaac Newton was the president once. Charles Darwin was a member. Albert Einstein was a member. And uh, I presented this prize with two Oxford professors. And uh, so nobody's won it yet, but I think this is the most fundamental question in science that that can be precisely defined. I also wrote this book called Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. This is the first book to correctly explain how evolution works at a level that a high school kid could actually understand. Because all that stuff that's been in the literature, part of the problem is it's so complicated, it's so difficult to explain, that the stupid explanation usually wins out. And so, if you're interested in this subject, then you could, you could pick up this book. Now,
1: this is all just background.
2: Harry, Yeah. You
1: want to- yeah. in in one sentence what is the prize for? How do you get
0: code from chemicals? How do you stir ocean water and get digital code? Nobody knows. And if you don't have code you can't have genetics and if you don't have genetics you don't have heredity. So like If you're gonna figure out anything about where life came from, you gotta solve this. Yeah. And so I figure it's worth $10 million. So we'll pay you 100,000 if you figure out in any way, shape, or form. And if it's patentable, we'll pay for the patents and the attorneys. And when the patents are granted, we'll pay you $10 million and buy the rights from you and partner you into the company. And then we're off to be the next unicorn on you know Wall Street okay so but you don't get to make up a story about a warm pond and a lucky lightning strike and a happy chemical accident oh well, there were these RNA strands and they started replicating and they bumped into some lipids and it turned into a protocell okay like this is kind of the story they tell you they're welcome to hypothesize all they want but that is all that it is okay it doesn't even come close to explaining the real questions that we have. Okay, so this is kind of some background. So, about a year ago, one of my friends came to me and he goes, Perry, I think I know where we could get hundreds of millions of dollars for science funding. Uh, this is all very tentative, but he goes, do you think you could help me figure out like, what a new model for science funding and publishing maybe should look like? And I go, sure. And so I already knew all these scientists, so like my prize, I've got the leading physiologist at Oxford on my judging panel. I have the leading geneticist at Harvard on my judging panel. Uh, I've got some pretty serious people. And I, I've become friends with a, a lot of like, really top scientists. And so I started calling up these scientists. i get them on Zoom. I, I was using Zoom five years ago before you know anybody was talking about Zoom. I'm an early adopter. I'd get these guys on Zoom, and I'd go, Stu, science publishing, science funding, what are the problems? What's it like? Oh, my word. They would just vomit all over me. Oh, man, dude, like, it is a crap show, man. It is bad. Okay, so how does it work? Well, so, so like, here's one version of it. I talked to a really sharp 30-year-old postdoc. And she goes, Perry, science publishing is, like, the best racket ever. Because here's how it works. She goes, so... Nature magazine. So there's all these journals, but Nature is the number one journal, at least in biology. <clears throat> and so everybody wants to get published in Nature. And it is harder to get published in Nature than to get into Harvard Law School, okay? It's really hard. And yeah. if you get published in Nature, man, you're in. You'll get a job. Your career is off to a good start. Like, all you have to say is, well, take a look at my article in nature published in 2019. and They'll be like, Ooh, she goes. So you have peer review and you write an article and you publish it. So the libraries have to pay for the subscription to the journal. It's like, you know, it might be $600 a year for one person and they have group subscriptions. You have all these institutions paying for that. Okay. And then the science research was paid for by public money, but it's not accessible unless you pay the, the subscription fee. And if you want one article, it's 40 bucks. That's pretty standard. And she goes, but get this. You also have to pay the magazine to publish it. So if they accept your article, you're going to pay three to eight thousand dollars publishing fee. Not only that, the peer reviewers don't get paid, okay? And the way it works is you can name five peer reviewers that you would prefer to have that they could at least ask and three that you don't want because you think that they would be jealous or not like it or something like that. And she goes, if what you're working on is like new, groundbreaking, doesn't fit the current paradigm, challenges the current paradigm, good luck. So it's the same old guys getting published and cited over and over and over again. It's like a big giant go boys club and Nature Magazine and Elsevier make tons of money and they make it at the expense of the universities And, like, we have to play this game, and if you're doing really good, groundbreaking work that challenges the status quo, you end up in a third or fourth-rate journal that nobody reads or pays attention to. This sucks. Like, I asked my physiologist friend, Dennis Noble, he's one of my prize judges, I go, so, Dennis, on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is it? He goes, it's a 9. It's horrible. All right. Now, I asked another guy. 70 year old professor. He's published in multiple fields. I said on a scale of one to 10, how bad is it? He said it depends on what field you're in. If you're in theoretical physics, it's a three. If you're in chemistry, it's a three or a four. If you're in biology, it's an eight. If you're in cancer, it's an eight. I go, why is it okay in physics and chemistry and bad at biology and cancer, he says, well, I don't know, but I have an idea. We know the foundations of physics and chemistry pretty well. It's not that controversial. The the foundations are pretty solid because we have no idea what the foundations of biology are, even though people pretend we do. We have no idea what the foundations of cancer are, so it's all a bunch of politics. And if you're not, like, in the club, it's a big problem. Now, my perspective on this was, hmm, now I'm starting to understand. So, you remember that whole, like, evolution is random and accidental story that you always hear? How on earth did that story keep going for, like, 75 years? It is seriously starting to crumble now. Any serious biologist now doesn't really buy that story anymore, okay? But the public hasn't got the memo. And even in the journals and mainstream science, that story stuck for a long time. My question was, how is it possible that in an empirical field like science that you would have a story that bad last that long? The answer is systemic. So if peer review is a monopoly, and you only become a peer reviewer if you're in the club, and the only people led in the club are the people that are allowed to be peer reviewed, you have this circular feedback loop, and you have an echo chamber. So echo chambers did not start with Facebook and Twitter. Okay, Echo chambers are alive and well in science publishing and everything and so i was like well okay so whatever we come up with it needs to not be subject to that problem and also there's another ditch that we need to not fall into if we're going to reinvent science publishing we can't let what happened to journalism happen to that because journalism is dead. I mean, okay, there's like 0.4% that's real actual journalism, but most of it's clickbait headlines and nonsense. So we can't let that, that's worse. That's like worse than a tyranny, okay? So we can't have anarchy. So shift gears slightly But we're still dealing with the same questions and problems. So, March of this year, coronavirus hits. And now we are literally a week into, you remember how terrified everybody was? Like, what on earth is going to, like, is the whole world going to go to hell on a handbasket or what? So, we're, like, right in the middle of this. This is like the worst part of the pandemic. Nobody has any idea what's going to happen next. And I have this publicist, and she's supposed to be getting me Evolution 2.0 publicity. So we had press releases on PR Newswire, and we got articles in Financial Times and different places. And she's like, Perry, nobody in the media wants to hear about anything but a virus right now. Like anything that's not virus, you're like, surely you have an angle on coronavirus, like an evolution 2.0 angle. And I thought, well, I should, but I, I don't know. I haven't come up with one. Well, let me give this another try. I said, all right, it's a Saturday. I'm going to spend all day today working on what's an evolution 2.0 angle. So, so what would that mean? Well, so remember, I'm talking about the corn plant. And I'm like, the corn plant rewrote its own operating system. How did it do that? Well, we have a little bit of an idea how it does that. It's got all this machinery that rearranges genes and chromosomes. Well, with a virus, viruses do not have that machinery. So how does a virus evolve? so i'm like all right it's a saturday i get all day i'm gonna spend all day i'm gonna watch youtube videos i'm gonna read scientific papers i'm gonna email all these scientists that i know i'm gonna try to get find something like there's got to be some missing piece here so i got this friend named jean claude perez and he's in france he's a retired ibm guy and he's done a number of papers with luke montanier who won the Nobel Prize for figuring out HIV. And it was literally three or four days before this paper got published. He emails me and he goes, because I asked him a question, he goes, here, read this. And so he sends me this paper that he wrote with uh, Dr. Montagnier and he says, coronavirus was engineered in the lab and we proved it. I'm like, okay. And he sends me this paper. And I read the paper. And what the paper says is, there are chunks of HIV and SIV inserted into the coronavirus. And like, (coughs) look, this piece from over here, this piece from over here. And like, he's got all the diagrams in there. And I'm like, dang. But wait a minute, like, I need more information. He's like, dude, like this paper's coming out in three days and I'm too busy and can't help you. And so I get some other people involved and we start looking at this. And so I I get enough people helping to go, if he's right, this is like a big problem. This is like major headline news, but is he right? And I start reaching out to a bunch of scientists that I know, and I got, I got like shrugs. So like a week goes by, I haven't gotten anywhere. And his paper, what's in his paper is like, that's not good enough that I would sign my name to it. There's too many unanswered questions. So what did I do? How many of you know what work is? Well, everybody needs to know what Upwork is. Upwork is the site where it used to be called Elance, which I think is a much better name. You can hire any freelancer to do anything you can think of. Like you want somebody to Photoshop a picture or you want a computer programmer to write a $100,000 piece of software or anything in between, like you can fire. So I go in Upwork and I hire uh, two geneticists and a virologist out of the Evolution 2.0 funds and am like you read this paper and you corroborate everything he says and they, they bang away at that for about a month and here's what we came up with. So you know those HIV sequences that, that are in, inserted in there? I could find those sequences in your DNA, your DNA, a goldfish, a sparrow, uh protozoan they're so short i mean uh bad analogy maybe but it was almost like finding i before e except after c in a book he didn't prove this this is not unique enough
1: and i'm like and for it to be unique enough to be able to say this thing was just engineered in yeah. the lab we took this we took that yeah. And so he had these little things. that said, see, it was just manufactured in a lab. And you're saying, eh. No.
0: No. I'm like, well. no." keep in mind, like, while this is going on, I'm like, am I sitting on, like, the world's most explosive news story? Right. Uh, right. It's like, well, you know, you better have your story really ironed out before you put that out there. So, it's like no and like he didn't retract the paper and he's still out there but nobody's taking it seriously so anyway but now i had another question because and here's what here what it was so on the screen here this is the original SARS from like 17 years ago right here This is the diagram of the different segments of the virus. Um, This is the MERS virus, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which uh, I think like 2009 or something like that, uh, that version was killing some people. And then here's the new version that we're dealing with now, which is why we're all wearing masks. Now, take a look at this. if you just compare these three what jumps out at you what do you see first, anybody first of you thing that they're a family right yes um, yes they're a family they're somewhat similar yes um some of them look just rearranged in the order yes So, this one has an M, this one has an M, this one doesn't. It's got a 4B and a 4A instead. Right? Well, actually, this M is over here, and there is no 4 over here. Uh, These have a 9B, this one doesn't, but they're modular. Like Legos. Now, you guys wouldn't know this. But that does not fit the standard story that you get from most virologists about how viruses evolve. Most virologists talk about little copying errors. In fact, this is just like the other evolution conversation. Oh, it's just copying errors and selection. No, something's moving these things around. Here's an even more detailed picture of more versions this is called an alignment so they all have a protein called orphan one and then you have various you know some of them have certain things and some of them don't but just see how modular this all is I looked at this and then I start combing through the literature and I was talking to one of my friends who's uh done a bunch of evolution work and i go bill there ought to be a genre of literature about modular virus reconstruction and i can't find it anywhere like does this even exist Have they completely ignored this and he goes that's a great question uh let me get back to you and it's about three days later he comes back to me he goes he goes so If you go in this little haystack over here there's a needle if you go in this haystack over here there's a needle if you go in this haystack over here there's a needle nobody has ever put these together into a coherent story which so my assertion is nobody actually understands how viruses evolve and that's why we're in a 10 trillion
1: dollar pandemic so because if we knew how they evolved, we could fix, address, handle. Well,
0: if you know how something works, you got a heck of a lot better chance of stopping it. Instead
1: of this, just whatever, these random right. things that we do.
0: Right. Okay, yeah. like, okay, if a bomb blew up outside the Hancock building, and everybody said, oh, that was just random. Oh, good job, yeah yeah let's give that detective a raise okay this is like
1: this is what's going on in science people so is the reason we don't know the modular, the answer to really how it evolved is because the funding for this stuff, Perry, is so screwed up, and yeah. you're so far behind, in being able to address this thing.
0: If you're asking a question that's not in vogue or challenges the standard model, then you're threatening somebody's career. Yeah, yeah. It's, and all of these yes. 60-year-old guys aren't going to listen to you. Got it. And it's not even because they're bad people. It's just they're people. Okay. Like, good people in bad systems do bad things. Yes, sir? Maybe the silliest thing <laughs> that you've heard. Probably, probably not.
3: But, <laughs> so you're asking, what's a better model? Yeah. Hasn't this been an issue before in a different industry? And I say this working in a company that had this issue and it was disrupted. So, I work for Microsoft. Mm-hmm they had a monopoly on operating systems yes they did and god so huh i said god bless them but yeah <laughs> helps me but the open source community took on this huge behemoth monopoly you know it's been it was an established kind of uh, thing in the marketplace and they've built it to a place where even Microsoft has adopted it and has said, no, this, is, this holds a lot of value. People in the industry use it because it holds a lot of value and a lot of trust. So why don't you, I mean, why isn't it that you approach this research like an open source community? You have a group of individuals that are trusted kind of like a consortium, you leave out the, these magazines and you start publishing these papers to this consortium that people trust. And then they have this feedback into this open source community. And that's where all the trust, the, the mind share leads. And it's, and maybe I'm looking at it as a very simplistic approach, but the similarities are or there, to mm-hmm. Microsoft was 15, 20 years ago. That's what's going on in my head is it's an op- almost like an open source problem you got.
0: I think that's an excellent suggestion. In fact, I got a friend named Mark Ingalls who said something like that to me about nine months ago. And just as kind of a off-the-cuff response to that, I think as long as you have some Linus Torval- Torvalds-type people... Yeah. Um, who are trusted referees of the process? I totally think that could work. In fact, maybe that's the solution. You know, maybe it does have to be an open source kind of a thing. Let me keep going with my story, and we'll we'll just keep because that that's not an interruption. This is exactly the kind of feedback I want. So I have a notion of how of what's going on. So. I want you to imagine that there's a campfire tonight and uh, you're gonna drive down there and uh, you take your guitar and you're listening to the radio on the way down and you hear Hey Jude, okay, by the Beatles. And then the next song in the radio is you can't always get what you want by the Rolling Stones. And so then, then you get down there and you're all like singing songs and roasted marshmallows and you're strumming your guitar and you go, Hey Jude, you can't always get what you want. And you like make this, you like jam these two songs together and you mix the lyrics together and then everybody like is kind of, you know, uh, repeating it and singing it along and, you know, and then the next morning it's like the joke at breakfast. So, that's the scenario so the question is is a song a living thing no you know what a really similar question is is a virus a living thing well technically a virus if it's sitting on that table will sit there forever and do absolutely nothing okay but a virus comes along and touches a cell and sticks and slips inside isn't it a lot like when a person hears a song like a song changes you right you ever have an earworm like you can't get the song out of your head So, there's a symbiotic relationship between songs and humans. And technically, songs are just pieces of paper, they're notes on a paper, they're MP3 files, they're records, they're tapes, they're CDs, they're sounds in the air. But when they get inside your head, they come alive. Now, who. Made the mashup between hey Jude and you can't always get what you want who did it you did so my guess see the question is who's doing the heavy lifting here as far as I can tell there's only one answer it's the host So why does the host want to help SARS turn into Corona-19? There's something going on there. I haven't heard anybody else in science asking this question. So I got a little team and we're asking the question. I got a geneticist. She's working 20 hours a week and she's sequencing all this stuff. And uh, I think we're headed towards an answer. All right, so if that didn't give you enough to think about, here I got something else for you. Last November, I got this email from James Shapiro. He's a friend of mine, he is a geneticist at the University of Chicago. He was one of Barbara McClintock's proteges, Mr. Shapiro is the guy who discovered that bacteria can rearrange their own dna he figured that out in 1968 he's 75 now and he goes perry let me introduce you to frank and henry frank's the ceo of Bruker corporation and henry's an oncologist he's a science cancer researcher in detroit the three of us would like to team up with you and Put together a cancer evolution conference would you like to help us with that and i said in a hot second absolutely i'm in and so we have organized this conference it was going to be in cambridge massachusetts but coronavirus screwed all that up so it's on zoom instead october 14 to 16 so it's coming up in two weeks Now, what does cancer have to do with evolution? Well, that is a really interesting question. I have a friend named Michael Levin at Tufts University. Uh, You'll see his picture in a little bit. He says, the question is not, why do we have cancer? That's obvious. He goes, the real question is, why isn't cancer the only thing anything ever has? In other words, you know, your body is this finely orchestrated symphony of circulatory system and breathing and nerves and brains and organs and endocrine and like all of these things. And they they just seamlessly do their job. Why does that happen? Why do... 10 trillion cells cooperate to such an incredible degree. And then cancer is when they decide to not cooperate. So here's a way of thinking about cancer. Cancer looks like it is an ancient response to stress where the cell reboots and wakes up in windows safe mode. I'm sure at least this guy knows what windows y'all know what windows safe mode is? Yeah, we know. Okay? And it's like, "Hey, I'm protecting myself. I don't know what's going on here. I don't trust all you guys. Who are all you blood cells and who are all you lymphocytes and who are all you liver cells? What are you guys doing around here anyway?" He's like, "You know what? I'm just gonna take charge of my own little department over here. And then the body starts attacking it. And then it switches on its evolutionary toolbox. Because every cell in existence has one. Barbara McClintock discovered it in 1944. Cells have the ability to cut, splice, rearrange, and exchange DNA with other cells and reprogram themselves. So, now you've got a cancer cell, and it's like, it's rebooted in this primitive mode, and its response to everything you try to do to it is to evolve a response that will defeat the enemy and now you have cells that are in a war with you. Then you hammer it with chemo and what you do is you kill 98% of the cancer cells. But the 2% you don't kill evolve from one species to 1,000 species and now you've got 1,000 flavors of enemy instead of one and nobody can ever kill that. Now, this woman right here, Azra Raza. Let me tell you a little bit about her story. Azra is an oncol- oncologist at Columbia. She is highly published, highly celebrated, highly respected. This book came out a year ago, The First Cell. The title of the book refers to the first cancer cell in a cancer case. Like, what's the first one? Her husband was an oncologist. He died of cancer. Okay? Sad, tragic, life goes on. A few years ago, her daughter's best friend, 20 years old, I think he, like, fainted or something and they rush him to the ER, and they look in and give him all this scans and stuff. They try to operate on him, and then he wakes up and they go, you have the most aggressive form of brain cancer that we know of. There's nothing we can do about it, so we set you back up, and I'm really sorry, but like, like not a good day for you. He's like, oh, that's no big deal. I'll just talk to Azra about it. So he goes and talks to his best friend's mom. He's like, hey, what can you do? He was dead 16 months later. And this threw her in a crisis. She's like, I've been treating cancer patients for 30 years, and I can solve this. And you know what? We've spent a quarter of a trillion dollars on cancer in the last 40 years. And if you have stage three or stage four, you are no better today than you were in 1930. And we're doing victory laps every time we come up with something that keeps cancer patients alive two weeks longer than what they had before. And companies are making a billion dollars. Like, we are not winning this war on cancer. And she wrote this book. It's a very empathetic book, the stories In this book will make you weep, but it's also a scientific book so it's got scientific details you very rarely have those two things together and in this book she calls out the elephant in the room she's like we are not solving this we're pretending we are and we're not and I interviewed her on a podcast about six months ago and I go so what was the response of your industry to this and she goes they couldn't argue with the thing I said and I have too much credibility to take down so they had to agree like wow you called out the elephant in the room and you didn't get cement shoes like that's pretty good uh, this guy Michael Levin mentioned him earlier he's at Tufts University he does a lot of crazy stuff really interesting stuff so He's the guy that said, the question is why we have cancer. The question is why isn't cancer the only thing that cells ever do? Why isn't all life on earth just every man for himself? Why are cells so cooperative? Well, he's done some really interesting stuff. So one thing that he's done is um, he can scrape skin and muscle cells off of tadpoles stick them together, subject them to bioelectric fields, and they will reconfigure and reorient into autonomous creatures, within a few hours, they grow little, they call them cilia, but basically like little swim apparatus, and they start swimming around and they're not tadpoles anymore. And to some extent they can be programmed to do things and they have tadpole DNA, but they don't act like tadpoles. They're like some new creature. Another thing he's discovered is by playing with bioelectric fields, he can induce cancer in a tadpole and then change the bioelectric fields and get the cancer cells to revert back to normal cells. He says cancer is a disease of identity. It's that the body has lost the ability to communicate to those cells that, hey, you're part of our team, and you're supposed to be doing this stuff. And they differentiate, it's like like schizophrenia they think they're somebody else. By the way, how, how many of you have like a tragic lost a family member to cancer story? Yeah, me too. My dad died of cancer when I was 17. So, I mean, it almost goes without saying, right? I, I don't think we have to get into a big sad story. We all deal with it. You know, so we, we've got this cancer conference going on. we the thesis of the cancer conference is you can't understand cancer unless you understand evolution, and you can't understand evolution unless you understand cancer because they're actually the same thing. Now, that is not a typical, that's not a conventional view. The conventional view is they've got nothing to do with each other. Or the conventional view is oh, cancer is just some random accidental copying errors. No, it's way more sophisticated than that. And so I have started having all kinds of conversations with people about the cancer business and cancer treatments and cancer research and all this. So there's some problems in in cancer research. Here's one of them. So how many of you in any way, shape or form, uh, part of your work involves running proper scientific A-B tests of this or that. Okay, so like in marketing, it could be this Facebook ad versus that Facebook ad. Or in manufacturing, it could be this way to build the speaker or that way to build the speaker. This adhesive versus that adhesive. Or this software build versus that software build. Which one crashes, how many of you? do something like that in your work, or in your school, or your lab, some of you, okay? So, in cancer research, a proper clinical trial of a drug with placebos, and blind, and A and B, and all of the measurements, costs $100 million. Now, how many drugs have even a chance of making $100 million. Not many. Okay, so if you don't have $100 million, you're not even a player. Okay, so the drug industry is basically regulated by ex-drug company employees that now work for the government. I mean, this should be illegal, but it's it's rampant. Okay,
1: and they all exist like to keep competitors out. And they don't want to cure stuff because the money is in just treating chronic things yeah. all the time, right?
0: There's way more right? money in chronic illness than there is in curing it. Way more. You don't even need a conspiracy. All you need is quarterly profits and a whole bunch of people trying to make the profits.
1: Yeah, put food on the table and they get it call yeah. that yeah. They're not bad people. No, they're just people. Although I, I've had people tell me
0: Harry, I've seen some pretty dark things in the cancer business. I've seen early detection companies getting bought out by chemotherapy companies so that the early detection stuff won't see the light of day because if I detect your cancer five years before you have it, I'm not gonna sell you $60,000 chemotherapy in 2025. Right. This is a real problem. Okay, and if all the cancer and science journals are in the same pocket as everybody else,
1: we're not going to get really cool things.
0: No. And so I've been grinding away on this question. Like, what kind of a funding model would bypass all of this? Then you have the problem of, let's say we have something that honestly cures cancer two-thirds of the time, and it only costs $6,000. Well, if the hospital makes $60,000 on chemo, how are you gonna get the hospitals to use it? Like, isn't somebody gonna come up with an excuse for why this isn't proven enough or safe enough or whatever? And then you also have the problem of how long it takes for approvals to happen. So, you know, Greg, are you an angel? You're not a VC, you're more like an angel, or are you a VC some of the time? Whatever, okay? If you're an angel or a VC, you usually want your money back in like Two, three, four, five years? You don't usually want to tie it up for 17 years. Like, I don't know, Greg, what? 61, did yeah. you say? Yeah, I am. Hey, Greg, I got this project. You get your money back in 2037. What do you think about oh, that's that? That's cool.
2: yeah. <laughs> Right? Yeah.
0: Okay, so what do we do about this? Now, now one idea that came up the other day with some, some of my colleagues was, well, what if we ask for donations from people who already give money to this stuff But then we tell them, look, if you give to this research project, any research that comes out of it, like any commercial uh, developments that come out of it, you get first right of refusal to invest in the commercialization. That's an idea on the table.
2: So I have a question on that. Yeah, fire away. So in terms of research, whether it's medicine versus cancer, diabetes, whatever, Typically it is American companies that are funding that, correct? So is there not a thought around how we can create a larger global scale way to actually fund these types of projects that ultimately do benefit the world once we remove the patent off of that branded drug into a generic or what have you, to be able to actually build a more cohesive approach to medicine than basically, and and maybe I might be wrong, but the American population funding that type of research. Um, Anybody wanna, anybody have anything
0: to add
4: or comment on that comment? I don't think uh, the first statement that he made is true. I mean, I'm pretty sure Germany in Germany, uh, doctors and people and, and ecosystem is is spending as much money as we are. I'm pretty sure France is doing the same thing. The UK, all those countries. So, uh, you know, I think we already that's already happening in, um, in some in some in some form. Maybe not not as cohesive, but, it, but, but the research is happening all over the world.
2: Um, the research is, but is the
4: actual approval of drugs.
2: And again, I don't have the, the, the numbers, to, I guess it's slightly a premonition or just an anecdotal an comment, but it just seems like when we look across healthcare from American to socialism or whatever you want to call it throughout a lot of European countries, a lot of that comes from the US, it comes from Pfizer, it comes from Lilly, it comes from whole logic. And you know, if, if we can get a more cohesive or global approach to solving these issues, uh, and, and I know there is to some degree, but but is there really that much financial backing that's going to allow it to happen? I,
0: I don't know specifically in cancer. Generally, I find that science is a very very international enterprise, and you know, like our science uh, conference, we got quite a few people from Europe. I don't know if we have any from asia but uh, we got people from oxford we got people from germany Uh, if you go to cancerrevolution.org you'll you'll see Uh, but i also think the bureaucracy is international i don't know how to propel your question forward other than just what i've said no
2: that's fine i I guess i just personally feel like Americans bear a lot of the, the research and the funding of, of types of drugs. And whether that is a, a, like I said, an anecdotal comment or not, it just, it does seem like, you know, when, when I pay $350 for a month of drugs when I don't have insurance versus three months of drugs, for $15 to have insurance, there's got to be a broken system in there. And I don't know if it's still a branded drug or whatnot. But somebody has to pay those research costs, and I, I guess I intrinsically feel it is the, the American population that does pay a lot of that.
0: So reactions, other questions, ideas, alternative funding models. <laughs> yes, over here. I think. Raise first. Here, great God.
1: Okay.
3: Thanks, Brian. Uh, I would just uh, John's comment really quick. Um, I would say there's a there's a lot of regulatory scrutiny in the U.S. and that's part of the part of the reason why you see what you see. In addition to that, um, so with the the company that I work for does a lot of global investments, and from the competition that I see, you know, a lot of the drugs actually get started. The research is done in Europe because they have less stringent restrictions in terms of. But they can and can't pass and they have a little bit more flexibility and i don't know why the liability over there and how that structure works from a healthcare provider but in the u.s specifically uh we have a harder time bringing a lot of the you know phase two phase three drugs in just because of the fdic and if going on. sorry growling at me um so that's just a little bit of perspective from i would think so the, the
1: cost side we're always kind of later in the game but it just does seem to be that uh, because i'm not a big fan of big government but if but if there is a a case for the government to fund stuff it's this because the profit motive has just screwed things up so much right the cure thing but the process for government funding to get approved is just upside down and so screwed up so it just seems like some sort of Step back. There's a design thinking way. Maybe there's some cool way to step back and think about how to actually do this given the problem statements. It, it is shocking to believe that after since we were little, remember the Cancer Society? I mean, I'm you know, old, so I remember when I was a kid, it was always let's have money for research in cancer. 50 years, and we're still we still stink at it,
4: yeah. Right? I always hear uh, my friends from the right talking about regulatory. Predicaments, but sometimes I feel like the lot just the political system that we live in, you know, the lobbying, right? You know, you just talk about chemotherapy uh, people, the, you know, that crazy example or, or that uh, no very um, malicious example of uh, of a chemotherapy company buying uh, early testing yeah. uh, people. Yeah. So, I mean, just multiply that by 100 and that's the lobbying system in Washington.
1: Right.
4: Yeah. It's shocking. brand uh, I
3: was just going to ask uh, on the topic of one, funding and also places with zero profit, um, part of a replication crisis in science. And mm-hmm. it's certainly, you're not going to get, no one's going to buy for because there's no money in that. So
0: how, do, how does that get, is, is that something that you think about if, Trying to reshape this. Well, I, I have, I certainly have thought about it. I, you know, one of the reasons, like, nobody is going to get a prestigious professorship <coughs> for replicating somebody else's work. Like, there's no prestige in that. And and I have to wonder, well, what if there was just good money in it, and it paid enough money that you could go do your side project? Yeah you know, and, then, and, and do the interesting stuff. Like, okay, it's boring to replicate somebody else's experiment, but here, it pays twice as well as the regular work, so you could spend 40% of your time on your pet project. Um, I, I also just, inst- because I'm an entrepreneur, I think I think these fields need a huge injection of entrepreneurial thinking. And one of the characteristics of entrepreneurial thinking is skin in the game and risk-taking. Like, entrepreneurs have to make their own breaks and make their own money. Yes. And it's like, well, what if um, what if part of a scientist's education, and I don't mean institutionally, I mean, you'd have to decide, like, if you're going into science, if you're gonna get your PhD, it's like, okay, I'm working on my PhD, but I'm also figuring out ways to be self-sustaining instead of just nursing at the same
1: breast that everybody else is nursing at there was so much packed in to this hour i as assignment because i like to like not do assignments um, i'm suggesting you go back and listen to this again and maybe a third time because you will see isn't this just And and then you start to take a look at Perry's drawings and you you, you start to get a little bit better sense of why is this virus thing so screwed up with as much money as we have? We had the full force of the federal government for months, totally focused, and 350 million people like, yeah, let's get this figured out. We're just, we really don't know how viruses work. I have a story for you. Yeah. This morning,
0: 9.45, I had a consultation with a company in the U.K., they have a camera that you can attach to any smartphone. It's basically a microscope. Yes. So I prick your finger, I draw a drop of blood, I put it on a diabetic strip, I run it through the camera, upload it to the server. It recognizes patterns in the blood particular to COVID nineteen, and is ninety eight point seven percent accurate. And the biggest challenge they're trying to figure out is how do I get it approved? Yeah, it's cheap to make. It doesn't require any reagents, which are chemicals that are difficult to manufacture. Right. You just, but that would kind
1: of make me nauseous to do the, maybe you know drop.
0: Them. You'd have to look away. At Nora would do it for you. Yeah, there
1: we go. Right?
0: There we go. Um, and so the, the biggest Amazing. challenge is going to be government regulation. Amazing. I said, so could you put a tent in front of a soccer stadium, and, like, the kids can go in if they take the test. And they go, yeah, yep. we can do that. But it would be illegal. Because
1: it's just not approved. Right. Right. So so that's my advice. But very Marshall, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.